Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Dada, with episode 469. It's gonna look good, but she got me saying hey now. Of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again. And we on today's show have eight hours of professional wrestling to break down for you. Six, of course, from AEW, which not only had Dynamite Collision and Rampage, but also Battle of the Belts this week. And of course, two hours from WWE's NXT as well. And you may be asking yourself at the top of this program, Silver King, how the hell are you going to talk about eight hours of professional wrestling in one show? You can ask me that 10,000 times going, I'm never going to have an answer for you. We're going to find out. That is the only answer I have for you off the top today. Speaking of kicking things off here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, allow me to welcome you into today's show with a reminder that this podcast is all about Defy. So please be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, where you can leave five-star ratings for the show on Apple. Of course, you can leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read that right here on the program. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis highlights, and all of that good stuff. You can also send us DMs both for the last word segment on Tuesdays and also just your thoughts and questions for any of our podcast episodes. We will read your questions on the air and answer them the best we can. I also hope you all remember. I happen to love the number... Five. And I truly hope you do as well, because for only five bucks a month, you can become an official getting overhead. Join us at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over for those five dollars. Not only do you support the continuation of the show, you also get bonus audio and news posts every single week. Now, technically didn't give you a news post last week because the Silver King was on vacation, but we have one coming this Friday. And I promise you there is a huge news item in there that you are not going to want to miss again buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Now, it is the Thursday edition of Getting Over, so you know exactly what that means. We will be talking AEW and NXT throughout this episode, and I think given AEW is going to take such a significant portion of the show, and it had two huge matches this week that we truly need to discuss, of course, Blood and Guts being one of them from Dynamite and FTR against Bullet Club Gold from Collision being the other. We are going to do AEW second on this show. It's going to take the lion's share of the time. That means we're going to kick off with NXT. But as always, let me remind you, we have timestamps in our episode description. So if for some reason you only want to listen to our breakdown of one brand versus the other, you can find those timestamps and jump over to AEW. But as always, I hope you listen to the entire program. The truth is that this week I was actually planning to discuss some NJPW G1 Climax, some AAA Triple Mania, and even some impact on this show. But given there is so much that happened across NXT and AEW, I'm going to need to push that off at least until next week. We will see when we might be able to discuss it here on the show. But yeah, I was going to go two episodes with NXT on Wednesday and AEW on Thursday. Didn't have time for that. Then because of how much AEW I needed to catch up on from my vacation, I wasn't able to watch as much G1 Triple Mania and Impact as I wanted to. So again, I will repeat, two hours of NXT, six hours of AEW. We're breaking it down for you on today's show. With all of that said, let's officially kick things off 
with NXT. And we're going to go straight to the main event. The North American Championship was on the line. Wes Lee defending against Dominic Mysterio. So Mustafa Ali stopped Wes backstage. He was really bothered that he was defending the title before their title match because he wants to fight Wes and not Dom. Wes obviously took offense to that contention and they jousted verbally a little bit before Lee left. Later backstage, the D'Angelo family came across Dom and Rhea Ripley with Tony telling Dominic that Benny the Bumper from the yard says hello. Freaking hysterical way to tie all of that together. It is funny, by the way, that Dom was, I think, in jail in San Diego and obviously Tony in Orlando, yet somehow Benny the Bumper was able to get to know both of them. Kudos to NXT for that. Now, this main evented, as I said, Dom tried walking out with the title only to get squashed by Wes, who added his corkscrew splash. Suddenly, Finn Balor and Damian Priest ran in, despite not being advertised for the show. Priest tried to use the title, but ate a cardiac kick. Balor distracted the referee. That allowed Rhea Ripley to smash Wes in the face with her Women's World Championship, only for Dominic to pin Wes 1-2-3 and become the new North American champion in about 11 minutes. You want to talk about a shocker? I was legitimately stunned by this. I still am. Two days later, actually. It's one thing to book a surprise title change, but Wes was strapped up for 265 days, the longest North American title reign in NXT history. I just assumed that Ali or Tyler Bader, maybe both of them, were going to come out for the save. They would do a six-man next week, something like that. Nope. They strapped up Dom with an NXT title in his second ever NXT match. And while I love this for Dom and what it means for Judgment Day going forward, you know, I somewhat hate it for Wes. It feels like he deserved a better end to his reign. Though to be fair, he was heavily protected in a four-on-one situation with a belt shot. It just would have been nice to see Dom add the frog splash afterward just to really cement the fact that Wes is getting pinned and it takes more than a simple belt shot. Look over at AEW where a belt shot, I think Britt Baker a couple of weeks ago kicked out of one. I think she's done that like 10 times in her career, yet Wes takes one belt shot and loses. And I know AEW and WWE are different. I'm just saying it would have been nice to see a frog splash or for Dom to at least in some small way deserve the title in addition to the cheating. Also of note is that Ripley has now ended Two babyface title reigns in as many days, Monday and Tuesday. First, of course, Liv Morgan and Raquel Rodriguez with the women's tag team titles, and now Wes with the North American title in NXT. I should also mention the fans were furious, like in the best way. There were a couple of them screaming bloody murder, seeing Dom with the title. And talk about nuclear heat to have Dom win his first ever title by ending a 265-day reign from a guy who is about as beloved as... Anyone can be down there right now. Now, look, there's obviously a plan here, okay? The question is to what end? There's really two primary options. One is, you know, maybe there's a rematch next week. Wes wins it back, goes on to Great American Bash, fights Ali, and they keep going. The other, which I feel like is much more likely, is that Dom was booked to win this title because the goal right now is for Judgment Day to all hold some kind of hardware. And that could indicate a Balor title win for the World Heavyweight Championship at SummerSlam. You have Priest able to hang on to the briefcase while Balor is champion. That creates consistent intrigue within the group. 
It also provides a really unique booking option where a priest can hold on to that briefcase and he can cash it in as soon as Balor loses down the line. That's how I would book this. You have priest fake a cash in at SummerSlam. It doesn't distract Balor because he knows it's coming. Balor beats Rollins and then priest fully supports Balor as champion. But whenever Balor loses to whatever baby face he loses to, Priest cashes in immediately and the title stays with Judgment Day. That's how you create and maintain a really strong faction. And then if you want them to break up on the back end of that because Balor is jealous of Priest, then that's what you do. I guess a third option is that Dom just has the title and none of that stuff happens and he's just a transitional champion, maybe for Ali and Ali just takes it at Great American Bash. I'm just not sure that makes as much sense as the other booking scenarios I just presented. I repeat, though, that this was such a surprise booking decision, and it reverberated quite well, too. NXT did its second highest rating since September 2021, bested only by the Seth Rollins appearance a couple weeks ago. The main event segment with Dom, I think it topped 825,000 viewers. That's AEW Dynamite numbers. Now, whether this is ultimately a good call, strapping up Dom, that's going to depend entirely on the upcoming creative. I'm definitely intrigued anytime wrestling can elicit a legitimate shock for me, and that's definitely what happened here. Plus, I would be remiss to exclude the fact that this entire finish was executed incredibly well. The run-in by Judgment Day was sudden and really high energy. Balor seemed to like materialize out of nowhere, like he respawned in the ring or something like that. Wes barely had any time to gather himself, given all the surprises of what was happening. It was just such a great, unique title change because it came out of nowhere And it was extremely well done. And it's really not that dissimilar from what we used to get from the Attitude Era. Just a pure, blatant heel faction cheating to win a title. It's also a really smart way to get more consistent eyes on NXT. And this was the appropriate title for Dominic to hold if you wanted to strap him up. We've spoken so frequently about WWE integrating NXT into Raw because they're on the same channel on consecutive days. And we've seen that materialized with much stronger promotion recently, and even some storyline integration as well. Now, it has manifested in this case as a title run, and it makes sense for Dom to hold this North American championship because look, you're not giving him the Intercontinental title, obviously. You're certainly not giving him the United States title because it's on a different brand. The only other option would have been the tag team championships. And even though, let's say a year ago, It would have been totally fine, maybe not a year ago because the Usos had the title, but let's make believe two years ago or three years ago, Priest and Dominic, this incarnation of them would have been totally fine as tag team title holders. The way the tag team division has been built right now, you're looking at strong champion after strong champion. They're trying to make it a main event level title to WWE's credit. It's main evented multiple premium live events and obviously it main evented night one of WrestleMania. So Could Priest and Dom have been tag team champions and gotten a lot of heat, you know, going against Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn? Absolutely. Would it have made the most sense for that to be the the title that Dom wins? No, the North American Championship is kind of perfect, though it is also a bit funny because Dom is one of few young WWE wrestlers these days who doesn't actually live in Orlando. Everyone else moved there because of the Performance Center, and many of them stay there because that's where they've made a life. But Dom actually is going to have to go to NXT and travel after Raw every single week or at least many weeks. And that's going to create, obviously, some issues just in his personal life. It's going to take some free time from him. So look, maybe the end result here 
is Dom giving like big time baby face rub to an NXT superstar. Someone like Dragon Lee or Eddie Thorpe winning the title off him. That could be a huge moment and a great benefit. And this title reign by Dom, it can also be really significant for his long-term development. If they stay with him as a heel, they have a chance to build a really compelling character as long as he figures out the personality and charisma aspect of the entire thing. A lot of his flaws right now, and he does have flaws, they're hidden by the massive heat that he's getting. He doesn't have to talk because people are booing him anyway. And when he does speak, he often flubs his lines. He's not the strongest promo, but he can definitely get there. Kind of similar. I'm not trying to make a comparison saying he can be this guy, but a similar progression to the way Randy Orton started and developed over the course of his 20 plus year career. Don't forget, Randy Orton, especially the guy you see now, nothing like the guy who debuted in WWE. One other thing before I get out of this, something I noticed after the main event, NXT ended on time and it has ended on time for the last two weeks, no seven minute overrun. I never understood why it had the overrun in the first place, but it had it so long that now I don't understand why it's been taken away, especially given the fact that it's doing better ratings now, which is when you would want to have the overrun. So I'm going to look into that and I will try to find an answer. But overall, the main event of NXT, super successful. While waiting backstage, Rhea Ripley came across Lyra Valkyria, uh, telling her that she was pissed that she sung her praises a couple of weeks ago, only to see JC Jane beat Lyra in the ring. Ripley demanded Valkyria prove herself, and Lyra promised she would beat JC next time she faces her. Then Ripley and Mysterio remarked about how she better improve or she's going to get mommy's bad side. I just thought that was fun as well. A good little integration between Ripley and one of the women on NXT. Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams opened NXT talking about being seconds away from beating Judgment Day last week, despite a two-on-four disadvantage. They said they would have accomplished it if not for Isla Dragunov getting involved. So Dragunov came out looking all dapper. He is now is like a Van Dyke style facial hair. Uh, he's saying that he came down to prevent Damian Priest from cashing in Money in the Bank on Melo during the match, but it was Melo who lost control last week, not him. He said he always gives 100%, and Melo countered that by saying there's no contender in NXT better than Isla, but Melo is just different than him. It was a pretty fire confrontation. It did a great job to set the stage for Great American Bash, especially since NXT frustrates me by never putting the main eventers on the go-home show. At least that's what I thought would happen. Dragunov actually looked a bit odd because he came out wearing blue. You always think of him in red and black. So it was strange that he was all suited up with new facial hair, um, wearing a blue suit. It just, it looked different to me. I also think it's odd to see him looking all dapper. And then you have the champion Mello just wearing a cutoff shirt. Like I know, sure, okay. Stone Cold Steve Austin wore, you know, jean shorts. John Cena wore jean shorts. Uh, you know, The Rock wore muscle tees. I get it. You don't have to, just because you're champion, you don't have to look dapper wearing a suit. But the juxtaposition between both of them, from a visual standpoint, it made me think, you know, Mello should probably start dressing nicer now because he's champion and he should want to, you know, have himself look as big as the title looks on him. So whatever, it was a successful segment for sure, especially given the limited build. But I think Melo would do well by just dressing a little bit nicer. A schism later approached Trick Melo Gang backstage, saying their friendship would disintegrate once Melo drops the title. Isla stepped between them, saying Joe Gacy is insufferable. They all jawed and eventually brawled. That led to a can-they-coexist six-man tag team match next week. I'll be honest, 
I got a shiver seeing Gacy around the NXT champion again. Just thinking back to that awful Braun Breaker feud, but this was fine. And look, we're getting the main eventers on the go-home show for NXT. That never happens. So that's a huge positive. We saw the second half of Baron Corbin's vignette from last week with him walking into the forest after incinerating all his old gimmicks. He said he needs to be feared and respected to become champion. There was a hooded figure there waiting for him, and it turned out to be Corbin himself, except for some reason, even though it was a clone of himself, the fake Corbin was three inches taller. It was really odd. Uh, The idea was that Corbin is going to face himself and figure out what he needs in order to be successful. I believe we've gotten four of these packages total. The first two hit big time. These last two, they've left something to be desired. The question is whether they're going to continue or he's just going to re-debut soon with something different. Either way, the fact that Corbin is being repackaged, that remains a positive. It's just this isn't hitting as well as it did when it started. Nathan Frazier and Dragon Lee fought Angel Garza and Humberto Carrillo. Last time we saw Dragon Lee, we noted that his entrance music got changed for no reason. Well, guess what? Now Frazier lost his music too. Both of them significant downgrades. The heels did a double press slam off the top rope plus stereo inside-outside moonsaults. Carrillo's was particularly pretty. Uh, Dragon caught Carrillo for an elevated double stomp and countered him into a Liger Bomb false finish. The Cousins taunted Dragon uh, and gave Frazier an opening to even things up. Dragon then caught Gauzer with Tetsuya Naito's Destino and got the W. The heels argued after the bell and Carrillo shoved Garza to the ground, both of them storming off through the crowd one after the other. So look, really no surprise here. This match was a legitimate banger and I'm going 3.75 stars B+. Excellent work both ways. I'd have liked a little bit more of more tagging by the baby faces. Dragon hitting Destino, that was a really cool nod to Naito and Los Ingobernables. All four looked terrific in the ring as expected. The breakup tease, it's a little confusing. Garza and Creo, they're a great team. As singles, neither of them really appears to have the total package, at least in terms of what's needed for the main roster. I just hope this is them regrouping and becoming more serious rather than breaking up. I don't see what they would accomplish as two singles in NXT. I, I just, I don't see what's there for them. All in all, a tremendous opening match for the show. Tony D'Angelo stepped out of prison with Stax waiting for him. This was ahead of an out-of-jail celebration in the ring with a ton of Italian actors. D'Angelo wore a three-piece suit and red shoes. Tony then put over Stax for coming up with this master plan, and they showed a video laying out the entire plan across the last two months. Gallus came out pissed off, so Tony told them to go get their shine box and get the titles ready for them. Joe Coffey pulled out a bat or something to threaten them, but everyone in the family pulled out like a dozen crowbars and the faces, you know, Tony and Stax ended up taking two of them. They got a couple shots in. Then they put Mark Coffey through a table of antipas. Look, it was pretty damn funny, okay? Not the best segment by any means, but a really smart way to show how the family was in control the entire time and completely outsmarted the champions. We'll get into an official prediction next week, but a title change really does feel necessary here. And, you know, now that I think about it, convicts like ran wild in this episode. I guess technically neither of them were convicted, but you get my point. Jailbirds, uh, Dominic Mysterio and Tony D'Angelo, they had quite a night Tuesday on NXT. Uh, Thea Hale fought Electra Lopez. Hale won via submission with a Kimura lock in like two minutes. It didn't make much sense seeing Thea take down someone Electra's size that quickly, even with a sudden submission like a Kimura. I get they want to build her up, but this was the second of two extremely short women's matches on the show that were frustrating. 
After the bell, Hale said Lopez tapped out just like Tiffany Stratton did, and she demanded a title rematch. The crowd was all over Stratton for tapping. Tiffy correctly noted that Thea has basically learned one move, and she accepted the challenge because she said it will be an easy title defense for her. Hale then demanded it be a submission match. Stratton, of course, refused. So Hale surprised her with another Kimura lock. Stratton screamed that she accepted the stipulation and tapped out again in the center of the ring. So for me, Stratton's kind of come off looking a little bit too weak in this feud with Hale. She's the newly crowned champion. Thea is still a neophyte. So it's okay to be vulnerable as champion, but it's gone a bit too far for me. Still, look, the rematch makes sense in kayfabe and it makes sense in reality too. They had great chemistry the first time they wrestled. I presume the idea here is for Stratton to debut a submission finisher that becomes part of her repertoire, but I just wish she looked stronger in the build to this match because there's really no reason that Hale should be this dominant over her when Thea is not only smaller, but she's newer to the brand, newer to actually wrestling on the brand. And Stratton is your newly crowned champion. It's not like Tiffany's had the title for six months and she's meeting this challenge she wasn't expecting. She just won a couple months ago. So yeah, I don't know. I'm not loving this as much as I should, but it does make sense. Now, NXT Anonymous caught Booker T speaking to Roxanne Perez, giving her advice not to give Blair Davenport an inch because if she does, Davenport will take that and hurt Roxy in the long run. Better yet was Booker's reaction to this anonymous account on commentary when he saw the video. He lost his mind. He was angry that someone would tape him without his knowledge. That sold the gimmick nicely, and we really haven't had a lot of superstars reacting to being caught on camera. They just kind of, it just happens, and then they tell a story out of it. So Booker T, like, selling it actually gave it legitimacy. This preceded a face-to-face interview segment ahead of their rematch at Great American Bash. Blair said NXT is not for little girls like Roxy. Perez said she's not big and strong, but she's filled with rage and ready to show a side that the fans have never seen before. Davenport said Perez doesn't even believe what she's saying, and she's going to hurt her so bad she'll want to go home. Roxy stormed out, with Blair making fun of her even more. Davenport was actually kind of great here. Perez, she just needs to find that intention in her voice, where even though it may come from someone who's like diminutive, you fully believe what she's saying. She doesn't have that yet. She needs to find it. But I will say this came together nicely, and I am looking forward to them wrestling a longer match. Gable Stevenson had a video package narrating over clips of all the different decisions he can make on where to take his career next, either going back to Minnesota, focusing on the Olympics, or truly beginning his WWE career. Now, we speculated two weeks ago how Stevenson's constant indecision was probably bothering WWE, But given this package, clearly he has either finally decided to truly get going in NXT or he's at least come to a decision that WWE is okay with, such as maybe doing WWE except for the Olympics this coming year, next year. Um, And but he's decided perhaps in doing that to not return to college. We'll see what exactly transpires next week. And also, what does this mean for Damon Kemp and their relationship and Are they going to refer to them as brothers on screen? Are they both going to be in NXT but not talk to each other? What is this going to look like? Eddie Thorpe backstage said the NXT underground win puts him in championship contention. Metaphor rolled up with Noam Dar still catatonic, and the women announcing the talk segment was canceled yet again. Instead, Thorpe got an autographed picture that he ripped up, and that led to a match with Oro Mensa. Lash Legend literally picked up Dar out of a wheelchair, rolled him lifeless into the middle of the ring during the match. This was a distraction, so Dijak 
could kick Thorpe's head straight off his body at ringside. Thorpe beat a nine count only to eat a running roundhouse kick in the corner for the heel victory. This was just kind of stupid. Dijak should not need metaphor helping him to do anything like this. Mensa doing a roundhouse kick as a finisher. That's dumb. This just didn't really hit for me at all. Gigi Dolan fought Kiana James. Kiana tried using her purse again, but Gigi stole it away. The referee then played a tug of war with her. Uh, Gigi eventually grabbed it back, only to eat 401k for the loss in like four minutes. This was horrendous. Gigi being obsessed with grabbing the bag was nonsensical. Their feud has been going for weeks, yet we got a four-minute match without an ounce of heat. This should have been the blow-off with Dolan winning. Like, are they actually going to continue this feud? Please, no. I cannot take this anymore. That is one big pile of shit. Axiom and Scripps fought Bronco Nima and Lucian Price. The teams got into a backstage confrontation last week that led to this match. Scripps made the challenge with Axiom reminding him they're not a team. A minute or so into the match, Scripps drilled Axiom in the back of the head with a forearm, smiling and nodding to the heels and then sitting on the top rope. The heels won with like half a boot to the face and then they walked out with Reggie. All right, so one thing we know for sure is Reggie's definitely not from their neighborhood. So I'm extremely curious to see why and how they are grouped together. This is not a sudden creative decision, though. Let's be clear. Think back a couple of weeks, okay? Scripps told Axiom that he was keeping the name Scripps because it's what my people call me. When Axiom was like, what do you mean, your family? He goes, no, my people. He also put over Nima and Price during the backstage segment last week that we actually saw. So there's clear intention to what they're doing here. In terms of evaluating the neophytes, like, I guess Lucian Price was explosive. Nima was slow and plodding. Didn't really get to see much because it was so short, but that's my limited evaluation for a really short match. Uh, there was also a video package with Dana Brooke mentoring Kalani Jordan, who was down on herself after losing last week. They did a whole gymnastics workout. They talked shit about Cora Jade needing to carry her kendo stick because she can't compete with their athleticism. Cora watched this backstage and slammed the stick into a locker. And this was just kind of awful. Like Jordan's not getting any rub from Brooke. There's no reason for Cora to be stuck in this feud. No one's benefiting. Dana being down in NXT isn't moving the needle. I just don't really get what they're doing. And lastly from NXT, Ivy Nile pulled the diamond mine flag down from their dojo, but we never got anything else. This just happened in like a 10 second vacuum and that's it. I kind of thought they were going to go back to it later in NXT. That's a shame, but... I assume we're going to get more next week and beyond, probably coming out of Great American Bash. So look, NXT, it was a super successful episode. No question about it. Entertaining, really from start to finish. Yet again, the main event was not necessarily a banger in terms of match quality, but it had a great finish with a huge storyline implication, not just for NXT, but Raw as well. We're going to see what happens here with Dominic Mysterio, Mello, and Isla. For Great American Bash, that's going to be an absolute banger. And we will give you an entire NXT Great American Bash Ultimate Preview next week, right here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. With all of that in the books, let's officially move to AEW and the six hours of programming that we're going to try to break down for you right now. First, an overview of the shows this week. Collision, I thought it was outstanding, mostly because of the tag team match. It was basically all wrestling with zero storylines. The tag match just carried the entire program. But the second hour was still strong enough with interesting names and interesting matches. Rampage, Battle of the Belts, total waste of time. Dynamite was back below collision for the fourth time in five weeks, but it was probably the closest that the two shows have been in terms of quality in the same five-day period. 
Blood and Guts wasn't as good as the tag team title match, but Dynamite also had MJF and Adam Cole and their storyline to help put some actual storytelling inside and outside of the ring. So let's get to it. Six hours of AEW this week. We're going to mix together Dynamite, Collision, Rampage, and Battle of the Belts. We're going to break it down by storyline importance. And we are going to start with Blood and Guts on AEW Dynamite, the Elite and Kota Ibushi against Blackpool Combat Club and Pac. This lasted the final 50 minutes of the show. The Advantage team was never announced nor determined, but it was the heels as it should be in a war game style match. Kenny Omega and Claudio Castanoli started with Pac, Hangman Page, and John Moxley, the first three entrants. Mox brought the toys. He immediately stabbed Hangman and Omega with the handle of a screwdriver. Instead of the metal part, if you're going to stab someone with a screwdriver, use the metal part. I don't get that. Then he grabbed a fork to stab them, and he emptied a bucket of broken beer bottles in the ring. This came with 35 minutes left as Nick Jackson entered to dropkick him into the glass and send Claudio into it with a huracarana. Then he got dumped into it himself with Mox stomping on his chest. Wheeler, Yuta, Matt, and Konosuke Takeshka entered in order. Takeshka went right after Omega. Mox pulled out a board with a bed of really long nails from under the ring. It looked like it weighed like 50 or 75 pounds. He really had trouble like moving it around. Omega got a shotgun dropkick and a body slam into it as Mox made fun of him. Kota Ibushi was obviously last. And I got to tell you, it was just wild to see Ibushi on my TV in HD without needing to cast it from my phone. Probably the first time that's ever happened. I will say at first look, dude looked like he gained some weight. Mox actually forced himself to bleed more by working a cut he already had on his head. He stomped Omega's hand into the nails while taunting. Ibushi hit a double Pele kick. He kicked Mox onto the nails and then he squashed him on the nails with a standing moonsault. Yuda and Matt went up top with Matt hitting his Northern Light Suplex Trio. Matt somehow got thumbtacks up there and he dumped them downward through the you know cage, I guess, into the ring before the Elite hit a double backdrop on the heels. This was kind of an odd moment because he dumped the thumbtacks when his own guys were about to get powerbombed into them. But it still looked really cool as shit to see thumbtacks like raining down on top of all these guys. Pack ate a series of high-flying moves as the Elite all stood tall simultaneously, but he got even because he hung off the top of the cage and dropped himself straight down onto Matt Jackson through a table with basically a coup de gras. And they did that in between the rings, which made it look even cooler. It didn't really look like Pack pulled up on that one. It was gnarly as hell, but dude, it was outstanding. All 10 guys brawled between the rings, then they exchanged signatures. Pack ate a snapdragon into the glass, but countered one-winged angel into brutalizer as the heels all put the faces in submissions with Claudio's swinging mat in the other ring. Abushi broke every submission with kicks, basically, to save his guys. Omega got singled out only for Claudio and Pack to get into it, which kind of ruined their team chemistry. Pack then flicked all of them off with double birds, climbed under the ring, grabbed bolt cutters, and unlocked the door, which was somehow locked with a chain, despite Yuta and Matt escaping to climb to the top earlier in the match. Then he slammed the door in Claudio's face, kind of. Omega went on a run of offense. Hangman hit buckshot lariats on Claudio and then Yuta, who simultaneously ate a V-trigger to the back of his head. On the Claudio one, he just stood there for like a minute waiting for the move. And it was so odd and obvious that commentary actually mentioned it. Like, what's he doing? Kind of just standing there. He just ate the buckshot lariat. Mox then got handcuffed to the first ring 
and Callus took Takeshka out of the match. Yuta got cut up and then choked with a chain over the top rope with the match just ending. Cameras completely missed the actual finish, which was Mox verbally surrendering for Blackpool Combat Club to save Yuta. Commentary did mention it later, but we never saw it. And that's just how it ended. Oh, by the way, Rick Knox also raised his own hand in victory at the end of the match. For what reason? I have no idea. All right, look, there's a lot to unpack here. Let's start with the positives. This was extremely fun. There were some inventive spots. It was great seeing Ibushi. Pack returning to the ring was a treat. Every time he wrestles, you remember, he's legitimately great, and it's a shame he is not on TV with any regularity. Whether that's him, whether that's AEW, it's just difficult. Now, his hanging double stomp through the table, easily the spot of the match. The board of nails was also really sick, but that was like an entire sequence, not like an individual spot. And these spots, though, between the double stomp hanging and the board of nails, this is what I like when I say I like violence and hardcore stuff, as opposed to just like the bloodletting and the unnecessary gore of stabbing people and blading for no reason. There's also a story element that played out nicely, but wasn't mentioned really on TV because the match went long and the finish was so odd the way it was both executed and produced. The story was that the elite were bonded by friendship and that won out over BCC being bonded by rage and violence. The finish of the match worked to tell that story, but it wasn't properly set up. Cameras missed the key moment and commentary didn't spend time to kind of hammer that home to the viewer And because of that, the finish of the match was clunky and overbooked and disappointing, even though it did make sense based on the story they were trying to tell. Now, in terms of negatives, unfortunately, there's more than I expected there would be. First, for this to be Ibushi's AEW debut, he played such a bit part in that match. I know he was a late addition and they had this blood feud going on between Elite and BCC, but there were so many missed opportunities for him to do things with Omega in the match. Instead, it was almost like any other wrestler could have been in his spot. You could have put Eddie Kingston, I know he's in Japan, he's doing the G1, but let's make believe Eddie Kingston was in that spot. It wouldn't have mattered. The match would have gone pretty much the same way. This was also, just candidly, the worst Ibushi has ever looked in the ring, at least all the years I've been watching him. Yes, he's coming off a really long layoff, limited wrestling over the last two years but he's legitimately at the top of his game, one of the best in the world. Here, he missed multiple moves. He did not look like his normal self, either physically, the shape he was in that I mentioned, or athletically. And just given this guy's personal standard, that was a disappointment. He was just slow as molasses throughout this entire match. Then you have the double walkout of Pac and Takeshka. Pac leaving, to me, made no sense. He argued with Claudio seemingly over nothing, and left a match that he didn't even need to be in in the first place, but he chose to be in because he wanted violence. What's frustrating here is that this was done to create a storyline for a Ring of Honor title match that needed a challenger for Claudio because Mark Briscoe got injured. So they adjusted the finish to a marquee main event match in a storyline they've been building up for nine months, arguably making the finish worse, just so they could make a match for a secondary brand that isn't even on television. Remember when Tony bought Ring of Honor 
And he got all that criticism for integrating it too much into AEW television. He goes, hey, now that we have the streaming show, don't worry, that's not going to happen anymore. Bullshit. It's still happening. That lasted about a month. Now, going to Callis, pulling Takeshka, once Mox got handcuffed, that made perfect sense. But in terms of a match finish, having two of the five guys just leave a blood feud in the final moments, and Takeshka was involved in this for months, unlike Pac, who just kind of came in and had two weeks involved. Takeshka was fully involved in this. To pull him, Takeshka on top of it, it was just kind of eye-rolling for a match again that was built up to this degree of importance. And then you have the elite. They get their big win in this nine-month rivalry, not only in a match without Brian Danielson, obviously due to injury, you can't control that, but they had you to take the fall with Mox 100% fine, just handcuffed in the corner. I guess that protected him to some degree. But the point was for him to get some comeuppance, and he didn't. Instead, he supposedly audibly surrendered on behalf of Yuta, but he didn't even do that in a dramatic fashion because he was so far away from the action. He was all the way back in one corner while Yuta was on the front rope right you know, with the hard camera facing him. So you had production missing a ton in this match, and this is a problem that's existed throughout AEW's entire history. We're four years into this promotion, and these mistakes are constant, as are the audio problems. But what needed to happen here is Mox needed to be handcuffed and held back in arm's length from Yuta. So you see this guy scrapping and scratching and clawing, trying to get to his guy, only to surrender when he realizes the effort's futile, I can't get there, and if they keep choking him out, they might break his neck. They might snap his trachea. That's how you do the finish. Instead, you have Mox like pouting in a corner, supposedly surrendering, and we don't even see it on camera. That's a huge mistake. The best way to wrap this up is to say it came nowhere close to living up to my high expectations, which were set not just by the talent of the 10 competitors in this match, but the way AEW promoted the match and how long-term the storyline had been. Plus, let's not forget, our expectations for Blood and Guts have been raised from prior Blood and Guts matches. Just like in WWE, when you get the Money in the Bank ladder matches or Elimination Chamber, you know they can do a great job. So when you get one that's less than great, you're disappointed by it. This definitely had its moments. It just didn't live up to many of those matches. It was overbooked. And in some ways, it's almost impossible to grade. I think the most fair grade for this is four stars, A minus, very, very good, a shade under excellent. One of my favorite moments actually happened off TV. Abushi centered himself among the thumbtacks, and he just took a straight back bump into them for no reason whatsoever. Then you see in the corner, Omega looks at him and he's like, what an idiot. And Hangman is just laughing that he did it. Now, I tweeted video of this. It's probably our most viral tweet that we've ever tweeted. So go be sure to check it out at Getting Overcast on Twitter so you know exactly what I'm talking about. So let's move off Blood and Guts. Let's go to Collision and we'll talk FTR against Jay White and Juice Robinson. Best two out of three falls for the AEW Tag Team Championship. So this opened the show. FTR was in their Heart Foundation gear. Robinson shoved Cash Wheeler from behind into Dax Harwood to interrupt Shatter Machine. Then he grabbed Wheeler off the rebound for a loaded punch with White hitting Blade Runner for the first fall after about 20 minutes. What stood out about this fall to me was the suddenness of it, concluding like the first act of the match where there was consistent action, but not much of note actually happened in that period. 
Given the match length, commentary did a particularly great job calling the action while simultaneously discussing tag team strategy. It helped move the time along, and there was a lot of filler that one could argue was a bit indulgent, but because you had commentary saying important things, you didn't notice it as much as you otherwise would have. So anyway, Bullet Club Gold leads 1-0 after 20 minutes. Dax had a great hot tag with a brain buster on Juice for a false fall. There was a slightly clunky near fall that followed with a broken tag move and a jump over sunset flip pinning combination. Wheeler then saluted Scott Hall in the sky before FTR executed a toss razor's edge neckbreaker on white for another false fall. That's an incredible tag team finisher. Someone needs to utilize that. Damian Priest, if you're ever in a tag team, I'm talking to you. It was great. That should have been a fall in the match. That's how great that move was. There was a ridiculously sick sequence with Dax superplexing White, who next got his knees up to stop a splash from Wheeler, only for Robinson to fly in the opposite corner for a fog splash on Hardwood for a false fall. Commentary at this point screamed, this is pro wrestling, and they begged viewers to call their friends to tune in. FTR hit Shatter Machine moments later, and even the match won one. White countered Dax over the barricade with a hurricanrana. FTR double superplexed both heels at ringside. We got typical stare down stuff in the match's final stage. There was a vertical suplex over the ropes outside. Then White paid homage to Shawn Michaels with the whole fake super kick, push down, sharpshooter move on hardwood, loud ass booze from the crowd. Then we got a five minute warning over the PA. Dax countered Blade Runner into a sharpshooter with Cash intercepting Juice and putting in stereo sharpshooters. The heels held hands. Uh, the faces broke the submissions. Dax's knee gave out, so it made sense why he broke it. I couldn't figure out why Cash let go of his. Juice then tagged in officially to be the legal man with Dax countering pulp friction into the sharpshooter for the submission with the faces winning 2-1 and retaining the titles in 58 minutes. White, even though he was only in a sharpshooter before that, he was outside the ring, nowhere to be found, did not factor in the finish. FTR then offered their hands after the bell, but White just spit at Dax rather than give them props. Exceptional. That's the analysis, folks. This was exceptional. Was it clearly the best tag team match ever on American television, as someone else infamously said last week? I'm not sure. What I do know is that it's undoubtedly a fair opinion to hold. There are some NXT matches that deserve to be in that conversation, some AEW matches that deserve to be in that conversation, but this was fantastic. Let's do the opposite of blood and guts. Let's start with minor critiques and then get to the praise. It was a bit formulaic with a fall every 20 minutes on the dot. And while the first fall was exceptional in that it came out of nowhere, both FTR falls, which were important in the match story, they were notably sudden, particularly the last one that almost felt like, well, time to end the match. So after 58 minutes of build, what you really want is that electric conclusion. You want the crescendo built up and built up and built up, and then boom, it crashes. It's topped off with a one, two, three, or a tap out. And we didn't get that. It just kind of ended. It was basically double submission spot, tag, submission, quick tap out. But those are really the only critiques on how it could have been better. Everything else we got here was exceptional. Credit to all four of these guys conditioning. They were spent at the end, but man, they operated at a high level. If this was on pay-per-view and 40, 45 minutes, you're talking five stars and match of the year caliber but it was extended and somewhat held back by its length. And the fact that it was on TV working through commercial breaks, that played into it as well. 
It was also extremely well-placed in Calgary, given all the Bret Hart homages with the crowd really primed to cheer for FTR. We saw inside-out action, good storytelling, both from a creative standpoint and when it comes to selling injuries and stuff in the ring. And again, the wrestling itself was just outstanding. I can't get over that razor's edge spot. That's an exceptional tag team finisher that absolutely must be used by somebody. Way better than 50% of teams doing some variation of high-low. I digress. I'm gonna go 4.75 stars A plus for this match. I can't get to five because we have a flat scale here and that's the top of it, five. If you're lower for your personal grade, anyone listening, at a flat A, completely acceptable. This reminded me so much of the revival back in NXT and some of those absolute banger matches that they put together. Jay and Juice, they were perfect foils for them. And in some ways, I kind of wish they changed the titles here just because it would have been massive heat. But FTR got over huge with the win, and now the stage is set for them to move on, perhaps to another big feud, unless, of course, Adam Cole and MJF win those straps. We will discuss that a little bit later. I'll probably never watch this match again, mostly due to the length of it. But it was definitely one of the best tag team matches of 2023, and it should at least be a consideration for match of the year when we do the meeties in December. Maybe this year, I don't really think I would ever say this before. Maybe we need to separate it and do match of the year and tag team match of the year because what AEW and WWE have already put out, tag team matches alone in 2023, makes it one of the best years of tag team wrestling ever. They both deserve a lot of credit here. FTR, Jay and Juice deserve a ton of credit. Uh, One other note, this really carried the water for every AEW program over the weekend. You could have skipped everything else on Collision and the entirety of Rampage and Battle of the Belts and not missed much of anything as long as you saw this match. And if you have not seen this match, now that I've talked it up to you, I hope you go seek it out. On Dynamite, the MJF and Adam Cole bro time this week took place at Kowloon, a famous Chinese restaurant where wrestlers stop in Massachusetts. The gimmick was that MJF doesn't like spicy food. It was too spicy, obviously. The waiter gave them 100% alcohol instead of water, which, by the way, doesn't really exist and would never happen. Uh, Cole was proud of MJF for facing his fear of spicy food, and they got excited to do a double clothesline to a waiter at the restaurant. After weeks of these segments absolutely ruling, this one was just kind of terrible. I thought it was over-the-top corny. I'm sorry. Actually quite surprised it was so bad because everything else in this storyline has been incredible. The guys cut a promo later with MJF dropping some really sharp lines, including saying he doesn't need a plan B for their tournament win, unlike Sammy Guevara's skank wife. I laughed out loud on that one. MJF revealed he got them matching ring gear. Cole revealed he got them matching jackets. And then as they went to the ring, Roderick Strong ran in trying to get Cole's attention. MJF entered to his own music, and then he waited for Cole, only to be floored when Cole entered to a remix of their themes together. A mashup, really, not a remix. Um, His reaction was incredible here, and all of this lead-up to the match that we got actually on Dynamite, not pre-taped, was about... 10,000 times better than the video package at Kowloon, which again, I just kind of thought was worthless. So MJF and Cole against Guevara and Daniel Garcia in the blind eliminator final. Fans chanted double clothesline at the bell. Then MJF mocked Garcia's hip gyrations, which led to a full dance-off with music and everything. MJF went over to the timekeeper's area, hit a button, and that started playing music. And they all danced. The lights went down. This whole thing happened. The heels somehow had like this whole choreographed routine. MJF did well enough. 
And then Cole came in just like dry humping the air a bunch with MJF cutting the music because it was obviously not a good look. It was simultaneously entertaining and extremely strange. It was like a cringe laugh. I do find it hypocritical that, you know, so many people who watch AEW, so they watch it for the wrestling and they don't like the entertainment bullshit. That's why they don't watch WWE. And they'd probably criticize this exact thing over in WWE. But all of the reactions I saw to this were super positive. This is the most entertaining thing ever. This is wrestling, all that type of stuff. And I agree with them. This was wrestling. It was fun as hell. Again, cringe and funny simultaneously. I just don't like the hypocriticalness or the hypocrisy is really the word I'm looking for of some people who would criticize this in one company and praise it in another. I digress. Let's get back to it. Cole caught Sammy flying with a super kick, but he ducked the double clothesline and hit a double Spanish fly. Guevara countered a crossroads, but ate a super kick on a roll up. Cole nearly convinced MJF to do a dive, but he stopped himself because he was nervous. So Cole sat on the ropes, holding them open and MJF hit his first tope suicida in AEW. Huge pop from the crowd. Huge pop for me. I thought it was really funny. Cole hit Garcia with Panama Sunrise back inside. They nailed the double clothesline on Garcia and got the win to a legitimately thunderous pop. After the bell, Cole took the world title from the referee to hand to MJF. But before he did, he lingered staring at it for just too long. MJF noticed that, got angry and shoved him. But they calmed down and hugged. um, And the crowd just was cheering for them, really. Um, As they... We're ready to celebrate on the ropes, though. MJF did stare daggers in the back of Cole's head, which, of course, is important in the storyline. Then FTR entered. They did a stare down in the ring. Commentary crowed about the collision match. And Dax Harwood actually got upset because the segment ended and the Cole MJF music was played instead of the FTR music, even though they're the champions. And I thought that was a nice touch as well. Again, I maintain, I've been saying it for weeks, the MJF-Cole pairing may be the single most entertaining thing that AEW has ever put together. You might not like it. You might think other storylines are better. You might prefer the wrestling we've gotten from other feuds. But this part of their storyline, it is just endlessly entertaining with great character work from both guys. Really, the Kowloon segment was the only down point in this entire chapter of their feud. For me, just for me, maybe others loved it. We knew this Eliminator was set up solely for their storyline. And while the entire tournament was clunky with most of the teams not even that random, as we've discussed, it worked to get the storyline between them over, which means ultimately it was successful. Now the question becomes whether Tony Khan is smart enough to throw out his booking, at least the assumed booking that we have, and pivot. Because one assumes the plan is for MJF to cost Cole in a key moment during the title match with FTR retaining the titles and Cole and MJF fighting either at all in or all out. A good booker though would pivot. They would strap these guys up with the tag team titles. You could even have them fight each other as tag team champions. I'm really curious to see how this plays out. And it's one of the things that, even though I watch Dynamite every week anyway, it's one of the things that has me interested in watching AEW every week to see what happens next. On Dynamite, Don Callis and Chris Jericho were caught having dinner together with Callis angry that a camera found them. They both exited a limo later without providing any details on their relationship. Jericho did sit in commentary during that tag team eliminator I just mentioned. After the match, he went to speak to the JAS guys on the stage. They blew right past him. I still lean toward this whole Jericho consideration of Callis being a swerve and JAS turning babyface, 
but we'll see what they actually do when the time comes. It is intriguing. On Collision, CM Punk fought Ricky Starks in the Owen final for the men. This was the main event with Punk wearing pink trunks for the hearts. Starks did old school for some reason. He also taunted Punk on a couple different occasions. Punk sat up to avoid a flying elbow, then hit a hammerlock style lariat. He also countered an Alabama slam into a pile driver and got booed calling for go to sleep. Starks escaped and hit a spear with Punk rolling outside. Punk then countered a running spear into Anaconda Vice with Starks getting his toe on the bottom rope. The finish was multiple pin encounters with Starks ultimately cheating by grabbing the rope for the one, two, three. The referee blatantly saw Starks hand on the rope after the bell and did nothing about it. Streamers went off and Punk sat there catatonic, just absolutely shocked sitting on the canvas. This was another instance of a third party, like a referee or a cameraman, getting in the way of an AEW moment. The finish, it worked well. It was a nice homage in some ways to Owen Hart, who would cheat if he needs to. Though I'm not sure if that was ever specified by commentary. I'll say most of the 20-minute match was rather mediocre. Starks over Punk, though, it was the right booking. And it was a bit of a swerve given how much Punk filleted the hearts during this entire run-up to the tournament. But he was the right winner, Starks was, because this will actually benefit him in the long term, at least we hope. The question is whether Punk gets like a 50-50 booking with a rematch and wins clean, or whether they just let Starks have this. I went 3.25 stars and a B. I normally wouldn't even grade this. It was a middle-of-the-road TV match, but it was an important match, so I went ahead and did it. Uh, As Collision transitioned into Battle of the Belts, for some reason, Jushin Thunder Liger was there for 10 seconds to award the trophy. Stark stole it from him and went backstage. We also saw Punk hug David Benoit, and yeah, that's what happened. On Rampage, Athena fought Willow Nightingale in the Owen semifinal. Willow hit a pounce and a spinebuster. Athena avoided a running senton and hit a standing moonsault. Willow came back with Death Valley Driver. Athena chop-blocked her injured knee. Still, Nightingale was able to counter her with a leg trap forward pinning combination for the win. This was technically the second women's match on a single AEW show. The other one was a 30-second squash, but still notable. It was also the best match on the show by a mile B-range, and the right booking we discussed last week, they can rematch for the Ring of Honor women's title, and Athena can win that. On Collision, Willow fought Ruby Soho in the Owen final. There was a distraction with Willow winding up with the spray paint, only for Ruby to catch her with no future and a false finish. Then Ruby convinced the referee to check a really tight turnbuckle pad for no reason. Willow ducked the spray paint attempt, pounced Soho, and hit the doctor bomb to win the tournament. You know what I was left wondering? Where the hell were the outcasts? They interfere extensively in all of their matches, but couldn't be bothered to help Ruby. Aside from that, good for Willow. Happy for her personally. A nice prize for her given she already dropped the NJPW Strong Women's title. The match was nothing special, unfortunately. But again, a nice moment for Willow. On Battle of the Belts, Tony Khan and Martha Hart came out for the Owen presentation. Tony legitimately looked like a child playing dress up as a cowboy. Martha gave her speech. She said, Starks and Nightingale will represent the, quote, kingdom of Owen Hart. I still don't understand the necessity for titles and trophies. I said this last year. I'm going to say it again. Other than using Owen's name, I'm not sure what this accomplishes for the foundation. The website, it was updated, unlike last year. That's a positive but they barely promoted what the foundation does, didn't really give people opportunities or call out to donate or participate or anything. I just feel like there should be QR codes and promotion to actually drive charitable revenue through this tournament. Like I'm actually surprised that this isn't mentioned by other people more frequently. It's been a frustration of mine now for two years, but let's move on. 
On Dynamite, the FTW title was on the line. Hook defending against Jack Perry. There was a 15-second promo on Rampage of Hook eating lunch with a girl, but pausing it like mid-bite to accept this challenge. That was weird. This opened Dynamite with Perry seemingly burying his Jungle Boy boots during a vignette from the desert before entering to Beethoven's Fifth, which, what the fuck are we doing here? Beethoven's Fifth? It didn't even work for him. He wore black leather pants and moosed his hair back, pretty much looking like a young buck. He wrestled more aggressively. Hook hit a nice T-bone suplex of Perry off the ring apron outside. Hook then no-sold the German suplex, but ate a mule kick low blow from Perry, followed by a running elbow for a false finish. Jack grabbed the FTW title, which then commentary explained, this FTW title match is not being contested under FTW rules, which would be like a hardcore title not being defended under hardcore rules. So Jack tries using the title, but squashes the referee in the corner, eats a headlock suplex, no count. Then he hits Hook in the head with the belt and gets the one, two, three to win the FTW title. Again, not contested under FTW rules. So there was a good consistent amount of heat on Perry in the finish to this match. And look, if crowd reaction is the only metric, then the heel turn is working. As a viewer, it doesn't have any believability for me. And again, this match happening outside of FTW rules when it's an unsanctioned title in the first place, it just doesn't make a shred of sense to me creatively. So look, I've been critical here. Others clearly enjoyed it. That's a positive. The best part of the match was Hook looking legitimate for an extended period, which really has not been the case before. Working with Jack, that certainly helped him. There's also this strange deal where every FTW champion in AEW has held the title from July one year to July the next year. Almost like they randomly remember once a year, oh, it's July 4th, crap, we have the FTW title. We should change that. And again, this FTW champion, it's an unsanctioned title. That person who has the title should be wrestling matches under FTW rules frequently. And then when the title is actually defended, it should be defended under FTW rules. I do think Perry is the first wrestler not affiliated with Taz to hold the title in AEW, which is interesting. Taz did a really good job on commentary selling everything that happened, you know, being angry about his son losing and Perry beating him and cheating and all that type of stuff. But again, Jack just is not doing it for me right now. On Rampage, Tremperetta fought Lance Archer. So here, Archer had his first TV match against a signed AEW talent since November, eight months. He won with Blackout and Hilariot in eight minutes. This was done so he could challenge Orange Cassidy to an international title match at Battle of the Belts, saying if he didn't accept, that he would literally murder the best friends. Then Orange walks out, commentary announces the match is already official. Jake Roberts convinced him not to hurt Cassidy because, hey, he should be fresh for the title match. It was a total clusterfuck. They literally brought Lance Archer back for a random, undeserved title match out of nowhere. And they couldn't even take a breath and wait to make it official. They made it official while the guy was walking to the ring. Block at zero! So on Battle of the Belts, we had the international title on the line. Cassidy, Archer. Orange worked the knee to cut the big man down. Archer cut Orange punch and hit a boss man slam. Jake Roberts was about to DDT Orange with the referee distracted, but Archer stopped him. The heel didn't want to cheat. Cassidy took out his knee again, hit a basement DDT in front of Roberts. Archer completely no-sold it. And then the match ended with Orange and Lance Archer on the ring apron, Orange punching him as the referee counted and winning via countout to retain the title. 
The key here, though, was the punch that knocked Archer off the apron. There's a storyline implication with Orange selling the injured hand heavily, perhaps finally setting it up for a challenger to take advantage of the injured hand and get an excused loss for Orange with the title changing. It's weird that none of these challengers have said, oh, you know, this guy, he's working with an injured bandaged hand. I should just break it more and more and more and submit him and win the title. It's Look, this was terrible. Sorry. It it was just, it was bad match, bad storyline, total waste of time. On Dynamite, Orange Cassidy, best friends, Chris Statlander, Darby Allin, and Nick Wayne were all backstage for an interview. Darby threatened Swerve Strickland ahead of Royal Rampage. Then he turned to Orange and said, hey man, I owe AR Fox a favor for taking me in back in the day. Can you give him a title match? And then Orange just agreed. Fucking Why? Orange has put together a great title reign, and there's been some awesome defenses, no doubt about it. But some of these challenges are just absolutely ridiculous. This is among the worst of them. Fox gets a title shot because Darby owes him a favor from like a decade ago when it isn't even his championship to defend. Why didn't Darby defend the TNT title against this guy if he really owed him that many favors? If you wanna book a random title match, do a real open challenge. Put Orange in the ring. Say, hey, I want to defend the title tonight. Let AR Fox answer. You don't even need a reason at that point. It's better to do that as a random open challenge than come up with ridiculous shit like this. AEW doesn't even book the open challenges right when they call them open challenges. And then they do dumb shit like this when an open challenge is the obvious answer. Incredibly stupid. I hate this. I hate this crap. Stop. Stop with the crap. As far as Royal Rampage, I have not seen the spoilers. I want to make that very clear. Looking at who is in the match, my assumption would be that Darby and Swerve would cost each other and someone like Ethan Page would come out on top. He would work a really good promo for the TNT title going head to head with Christian on the mic. That would make a lot of sense. On Rampage, Taya Valkyrie fought Izzy McQueen. Taya won with Rhodes of Valhalla in 30 seconds. The outcast came down after calling her a loser Canadian. Taya told her not to worry about the title, and it led to a Battle of the Belts championship challenge. This despite Valkyrie already losing multiple TBS title matches in the last couple of months. Credit where it's due because Tony and Taya, they were actually both pretty strong on the mic here, but the creative was silly, the booking was ridiculous, and a match against a a jobber on Rampage, a women's match, what are we even doing? So then we go to Battle of the Belts, Storm, Valkyrie for the women's championship. Storm escaped, wrote to Valhalla, and with a punch from Soho aiding her, hit Storm Zero to retain the title. See, this goes back to what I was just talking about earlier. No one was there for Ruby, but Ruby was there for Tony. Weak match, despite both of these women being really talented. The promo segment on Rampage was somehow better than the match on Battle of the Belts. It didn't make any sense. Also on Battle of the Belts, we had the TNT title on the line, Luchasaurus against Sean Spears. So I'm legitimately confused here, okay? I am 99% sure that Spears was back in AEW doing the old WWE Perfect 10 gimmick in his lone match two weeks ago. He won that in four minutes over Blade as a means of legitimizing him to go after the TNT title. So if he was doing that gimmick, why the fuck was he back to the chairman gimmick here? So confusing. Anyway, Scorpio Sky watched backstage. Christian directed Luchasaurus how to destroy Spears. He got run into a chair propped between the turnbuckles. Christian distracted during a C4 attempt with Luchasaurus hitting a lariat to the back of Spears' head. 
to retain the title. I have nothing positive to say about this. On Dynamite, Britt Baker fought Kayla Sparks. Britt hit three moves and won with Lockjaw in about 60 seconds. This was the only women's match on the show, and it was called a great win by commentary. Matches like these tell you exactly what AEW thinks of its women's division. It is one thing to only have a single women's match per show 99% of the time. But when that one match features a named wrestler against an enhancement talent, they really just don't give a single shit or care about creating storylines, putting interesting matches together, building the division, doing much of anything. I mean, I get angry about WWE doing three-minute matches between talent, but at least those lead into storylines and have implications beyond the matches themselves. Consider matches like this, and I don't know, man, maybe I should lighten up on WWE a little bit. This was not good. In fact, it was worse than not good. It was pathetic. Zero point zero. On Rampage, Dark Order explained that they turned on Hangman Page because they made him a world champion only for him to abandon them. They said they were made weak by helping him, but are now resurrected and focused on rebuilding. Decent promo. I've kind of lost interest in them as a group, but maybe if they do something surprising, they can win me over. On Collision, House of Black fought a bunch of jobbers. Andrade El Idolo came out for a few minutes. Malachi Black paused for a moment, then hit the jobber with Black Mask to get the win as Julia Hart played with Andrade's mask at ringside. This just didn't need to be on the show at all. It was a waste of time. On Rampage, Naturally Limitless fought Daddy Magic and Cool Hand. Keith Lee got the win after hitting Big Bang Catastrophe. No reason for this match to have happened. Still ridiculous that Keith is teaming with Dustin Rhodes. Are they really not going to follow up on the Swerve Strickland repairing? Like, they put Swerve with Darby, and they're not telling a story with them being in the Blind Eliminator, partnering together, given another chance for them to fight one-on-one. They're still not going to do it. I, I I don't have words. I lost it. On Rampage, Konosuke Takeshka fought Mentalo, I think was his name. Don Callis said the jobber was a childhood friend of Kenny Omega. Takeshka beat him for four minutes after this guy got way more offense than he should, including a 2.8 count. Horrendous waste of time. And lastly, on Rampage, QTV had QT Marshall promising to make up with Powerhouse Hobbs. Johnny TV clean jumped out of his pool, challenging a claim to a trios match. Back to being shit after a one-week reprieve, Obviously, the hope is that Hobbs wouldn't buy his shit. On collision, Marshall made his case to Hobbs, but stuck his foot in his mouth, suggesting he would take out the biggest and baddest in AEW just to prove his dedication to him. Hobbs seemingly took him up on that. I thought that was pretty interesting. Acclaimed then on Battle of the Belts, accepted the trio's challenge. Max Caster smartly didn't mention Harley Cameron outclassing him on the mic. Good thing, because she did. Anthony Bowens then announced they're getting a deserved trio's title rematch on collision. So I don't understand. They accepted the challenge, haven't won that match yet, but they're already getting a trio's title rematch on collision. Since their last title match in May, they've won three matches. They've beaten absolutely nobody of importance. It is so odd how a roster with 100 wrestlers can't establish any trios for this division just to keep life in the division. I just don't get it at all. And I I remain... Sure, that the acclaimed, man, they are just, their arrow is pointing down. They were so ridiculously hot. They have been cooled off immensely. So look, as you can tell, it was a mixed week for AEW. I thought the highs were ridiculously high. There were three huge developments this week. You had the two of three falls match for the tag team titles. Easily the best thing AEW did. Blood and Guts, really freaking good. It had its issues, but a fantastic television match. And then the Adam Cole-MJF storyline 
that continues to hit as well. And you can even say that the Jericho, Don Callis, and the CM Punk, Ricky Starks, that was all interesting. But everything else we got, which was four of the six hours of AEW television, it really left a lot to be desired. Look, man, Tony Khan, he had to book six weeks of AEW TV this week, plus Ring of Honor, plus he's making plans for All In and All Out. It is just too much. We said this when Collision started. If you want to start Collision and end Rampage and end all the YouTube shows, they would be fine. But to do it with Rampage, to occasionally have to throw in Battle of the Belts, to have to book Ring of Honor and inject some Ring of Honor storylines into AEW television, it's too much, it's too messy, and it's also expecting that your audience is aware of every single thing that is happening, not just on every TV program, but many things that are happening in Ring of Honor as well. I don't think it's long-term gonna work for them. We'll see now that Battle of the Belts is over, maybe after Death Before Dishonor, on the way to All In and All Out. If they can rectify it and get the ship righted before football season, then maybe everything will be okay. But this was, a outside of, again, these tentpole moments for AEW, other than that, it was an extremely messy week. And folks, that was the 469th episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, eight hours of professional wrestling, all inside a very short window. I hope for that you will consider remembering that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about the five. And heading over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, where you can leave us five-star ratings on Apple. You can also leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, all of that. You can also DM and tweet us questions and comments. We will read those live on the show. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do too, because for five bucks a month, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Subscribe. You can also one time $50 for the year becoming a getting overhead. And for that, you get bonus audio and news posts every single week. Coming up here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast soon, before the end of the month, we will have an exclusive interview with none other than WWE's The Street Profits, Montez Ford and Angelo Dawkins. On Tuesday will be your next WWE episode. On Wednesday, your NXT Great American Bash Ultimate Preview. And on Thursday, your AEW episode, which may have a little bit of G1, Triple Mania, Impact, some other stuff sprinkled in there as well. You are not going to want to miss any of it. If you happen to be a first-time listener, wherever you're listening right now, be sure to hit that subscribe button, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever we are on Thanks to everyone for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I hope everyone has a great weekend. We will be back on Tuesday with that WWE show. But at this point, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with three final words. Bye for now. <laughs>